Gentlemen, welcome to the Manlyhood Man cast. Really glad you guys tuned in. We've got an amazing interview with Jonathan McLernan, who has been through some amazing scenarios. Uh, the story that he's going to tell about the, the trauma that he's endured is phenomenal. But more importantly than that, he's going to walk us through how he turned that situation into an opportunity for his life to change for the better. And listening to his story about overcoming that is really powerful really powerful. He's a fantastic guy, and I'm really looking forward to this interview with Jonathan McLernan. But before we get into it, I just want to let you guys know, we're giving away this amazing everyday carry knife from Haynes Knives, H-A-I-N-E-S knives.com. You can find them on social media at Bird Forge. Uh, this is called the Black Pearl, and it's a knife that was made just for manlyhood to be able to give away to you. It's one of a kind, hand-forged. This guy is an expert. I mean, it's like super sharp, and it is gorgeous. So if you want the chance to win this, go to manlyhood.com slash contests. That's manlyhood.com slash contests. You can enter to win. The enter to win is free. All you have to do is sign up. But if you want to get extra chances to win, you can send a dollar. For every dollar, you get another chance. So if you've got $20, you got 20 chances to win this thing. So go to manlyhood.com slash contests and enter to win. With that being said, guys, let's get into our interview today with Jonathan McLernan. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. I've really uh, anticipated this conversation, so I'm excited. It's going to be good stuff. How are you today, man? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fantastic. So I'm over in Australia right now. Um, normally, I live in Canada, so I'm just escaping um, winter for two months because where I live just gets like a brutal winter. So, um, you know, seeing the sun come up, enjoying the summertime in February seems a bit weird, but uh, I'm loving it. Awesome. Yeah. Go to go from uh, one almost oppressive regime to another oppressive regime. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> At least the weather's great, right? <laughs> hey, man, uh, I'm, I'm not in disagreement with you. <laughs> I, I've been hearing a lot of the stuff going on in Canada and Australia, and I'm like, what in the world is wrong? Like, what's happened there? It's crazy. Yeah, it is. A little and, bit. You know, and I don't want to get super political, but it's definitely crazy. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, there's de definitely things that I don't I don't agree with. I'm I'm very um, yeah I like individual rights. So um, yeah yeah definitely. <laughs> no, I would no, tell you to come over here to America where things are better, but I don't know that it's really much better anymore. So <laughs> yeah, it's that's it's why we need, just we need good men in this world. Exactly, exactly. Good men um, don't require a whole bunch of laws for them to be good men. So mm, true. Awesome. Well, that's obviously not our, our conversation topic for today. Why don't you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing, man? Because you've got a phenomenal story and uh, you have applied it in a really powerful way. So I'd love to hear about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, launched a company called Freedom Nutrition Coaching back in uh, about 2018. I've been nutrition coaching before that, um, but this came about um, when a client said to me, I don't want to live in a nutrition prison anymore. And it kind of represented a shift for me. I myself have been going through this sort of personal transformation experience and trying to figure out why like all of the sort of standard sort of diet and exercise advice and supplements and things like that weren't really working for me and trying to understand why I could like know everything. I was highly educated, but why couldn't I seem to apply what I know and what was wrong with me? And my explanation at the time, because I didn't really know any better was there's something wrong with me. Like I'm just a loser. I'm a hopeless failure. I'm, I'm all these other things. And when I started studying the brain and behavioral psychology and uh, how our brain actually functions and applies information, 
that all started to shift for me. And uh, so I realized that if I'm going to help people lose weight, I didn't want to just be another, you know, 90 day, 12 week kind of program where it's like, let's, let's get you a great transformation over the course of 12 weeks. And then who cares what happens the rest of your life? I wanted to try to help people get to a place where they could um, lose weight and keep it off. And so I, I often find myself in, like, like I talk about weight loss because, because it's one of the mo things people most commonly come to me for, but w what I'm really wanting people to do is, is to accomplish like a genuine transformation in life. Like you can't, you can't go through this and come out of it the same person that you were when you started, if you expect to create permanent transformation. And so I really try to guide people through that process as messy and ugly and difficult as it can be. So, uh, I know that having been a person that struggles with my weight and my eating my own, in my own life quite a bit, mm. you know, you lose that, that, uh, 40 pounds over and over again, or the hundred pounds over and over again. I think that's really part, that's part of what drew me to your story, you know, because I know that you've been through some of that as well. Right. I joke that I've lost 600 pounds. Um, but what, what I'm really saying is that I've lost and gained the weight so many times that I've, you know, the heaviest I weighed was about 300 and 330 pounds. Um, but I had lost and gained it so many times. And that was another thing for me to try to understand you know, weight loss is an uphill climb and weight regain is a downhill slide. It's our biology. And I think when we, I'll tell you one story, I'll, I'll tell you one story. Um, going back to about 2015, uh, you know, I, I, I got to almost a hundred pounds of weight loss and, uh, you know, I, I, one, one December I was like, I, I just want to take it easy. I just want to enjoy myself over this holiday stretch here. And in my mind, enjoy myself was kind of like just eat eat whatever I want. <laughs> and, uh, so for about three weeks, that's exactly what I did. Ate whatever I wanted. And in that stretch of time, I regained about 22 pounds. So just about a pound a day that blew my mind. And I kind of freaked out a little bit because I didn't know what was going on and why this had happened. And it sent me into a downward spiral where I basically went all the way back to about 295 pounds. So I went from like regaining 20 pounds in three weeks, being so depressed at erasing so much of my hard work that, um, yeah, I, I almost went back to my original heaviest weight. That was the first time that happened to me. It happened to me again a couple of years later, but it was my first sort of open slap in the face that like as a weight, weight loss is an uphill climb and weight regains a downhill slide. But it's because our biology is such that like, you know, our body, we're wired to survive famines. That's essentially what's happening. And so when we think about it that way, our body creates fat cells once and we get to keep them for life. And so the next time we encounter famine or food scarcity, we don't have to work so hard to be able to store that, that energy. Problem is our body doesn't recognize in the 21st century that we live in like this feast society with an abundance of cheap, completely nutrient empty junk food. Yeah, that was, um, th that's the thing, right? The, the food that is there. So, um, what uh, what is it that that causes us to hold on to it? You know what I mean? Like like hmm. like you said, it's it's yeah. it takes work to get it off, and gaining it is the lack of work. But you know what what is it that causes us to hold on to it? Um, I, I think in short that we're wired to survive famines. So mm -hmm. the, the thing that frustrates us most in modern societies, the thing that's kept human beings alive since the beginning of time. For, from the perspective of your biology, what is stored fat? It's just stored energy for 
a future famine, so a future food shortage. It's like an insurance policy. And our, our biology is such that, hey, we'll, we'll store as much as we can because we don't, we don't know how long the next famine might be and how long we could survive. And so when we reach a certain weight, our body also gets like what we call a set point. And so everything's kind of, we can look at it this way. It's like, it's calibrated for that weight. So my, my body had calibrated all the sort of internal plumbing and, and whatnot to be 330 pounds. So trying to, to lose that weight is it, it, it's like, you're sort of fighting your body's like, no, 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 we're all set for operating at this weight. And so this is why also like plateaus occur. I just want to throw this in there. Um, people get frustrated by a plateau in a weight loss journey. And like, it's actually a necessary part of the journey because what's happening is it's like your body hits pause on weight loss and goes, I need to recalibrate to this new set point. And if we don't give the body the chance to do that, um, then the old set point remains. And so a lot of people, I think, also just approach weight loss. Like it's this, I just got to do this thing for X amount of time and then I can go back to living my life. And it's like, you can't go back to the way you were living if you want this to stick. Yeah. Well, I know that that's the case in my life too. Like I lost, you know, a chunk of weight and then you hit that plateau and then you get discouraged and you think, well, it's not working. It's not working anymore. And then you just go back. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me just throw something your way. Um, cause I think perspective really matters in this. And we, we often lose perspective and from the, from, um, weight loss, uh, you know, six months sounds like a long window of time until we say you have six months to live. All of a sudden it doesn't feel very long. And it's like, most of us would like to have many, many years of life ahead of us. And in, in light of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, six months is nothing. Like it's a, it's a blip on the radar. What often, and I think so what, what overwhelms us though. So, so that's one thing. So we need to have that perspective when it comes to, to weight loss, right? Like this is, this is not just a temporary effort. Cause it's like, if you're, if your method has like an expiry date, so do your results, right? Again, you have to, you have to become a transformed person to keep those results. Um, but the other side of it is if we start to feel overwhelmed by maybe the magnitude. So let's just say like, I, I didn't necessarily go into my weight loss journey saying like, I have to lose a hundred pounds. I, I mean, I kind of had a weight I wanted to get to, but if every day I was to think about, oh man, I've got to lose like a hundred, 120 pounds. Like that just feels impossible, like soul crushingly <laughs> defeating. And so then what we want to shift to is, okay, like at the weight I want to be, what's the kind of person that I am? How do I live my life? And kind of become that person and focus on that as opposed to always looking at this, you know, giant like anvil hanging over my head. So that picture of who I want to be and what kind of person I want to be is the helps. It's a better goal to set necessarily than, Hey, I want to lose X amount of yeah. weight. Well, I think about it like, uh, so if, I, if I'm going to start working with somebody, there's kind of a process I go through. Um, I don't just necessarily work with anybody who reaches out and says, can you help me lose weight? Um, I want to get to know them first. And then I want to know if I'm, like, I'm the right fit to work with them because I'm not the right fit for everybody. Um, but if we're going to work together, we want to figure out like, what is your wellness vision? So in other words, I'll, I'll give an example I often use with my clients. I'll say, um, Josh, I want you to picture a red car. So obviously a picture is just showing up in your mind, a red car. And for those listening, you've been picturing a red car as well. And uh, what's the car that came to mind for you when I said picture a red car? A Porsche. Okay. 
for me, it was the 1984 Lamborghini Countach. It was a poster I had on my wall as a kid. It's a car that I thought would just be the most amazing like car to ever drive. So I used the term red car, and you pictured a Porsche. I pictured a Lamborghini, like two very different cars. Mm -hmm. Yours is kind of boxy. Now, mine's kind of sleek. <laughs> there you go. So if you come to me and say, like, I want to get healthy, I'm like, cool. I might have an, a picture in my head of what get healthy looks like. You have a picture in your head of what get healthy looks like, but they might be two totally different pictures. So I need to know what you're picturing in your head. And so I call this, like, we create our wellness vision. What is it? I need to know what it is that you are picturing that you want to move towards. From that point of go, first of all, is your timeline realistic? <laughs> right? Like, you might say, well, I want to lose like 60 pounds in four months. And I'm like, you want to saw off a limb? Um, <laughs> because there's, there's not, unless you have like hundreds of pounds to lose, there's no way you're doing that sustainable, sustainably, like uncomfortably. That's just going to be horribly uncomfortable and really not sustainable. So now that we have this picture, we go, okay, this is what you want to move towards. From there we go, okay, who, who does that person look like? Like, what do they live like? What does their day-to-day -day life look like? Because your lifestyle is going to look different if you're going to be that person. You know, for example, like I want to be able to play with my kid. I want to be able to get on the floor. I want to climb the stairs. I want to run after him. He, if he starts going for traffic, like I'm an, I'm an older dad. I'm 41. My kid's two. <laughs> you know, like I got to be able to keep up with him. And so I know what I want to be able to do in order to. And so that's what it really becomes about uh, as opposed to say like a number on the scale. So then we go, okay, we can probably break this down into like a series of like habits and behaviors and things you do every day. And we look at like your, your current ones. Now, if we try to change 20 of these all at once, just, okay, we're, we're wiping the slate and we're starting. Here's 20 rules you have to follow starting today. Your brain's going to be like, screw this. I'm out. Right? I'm not doing that. It sounds exciting in the beginning and, and all the dopamine, the excitement over creating change. You'll feel like, yeah, I can totally take this on. And then a week or two later, it's like, no, I can't. And so we need to do this in a step-by-step -step sort of cumulative fashion where we, where we build like, because we're kind of building skills here, not just like forcing your body to lose weight. We're building habits and skills and behaviors and the mindset to go along with it. So we go build this piece and then we build this one and then we, and so on. And over time we've created this significant transformation, but it wasn't one giant leap. It was piece by piece. So it never felt overwhelmingly difficult to accomplish this. And then people are like shocked when they're a totally different person on the other side of working with me. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you find that a lot of this, I mean, obviously, you know, there's the simple recipe, right? Eat less, move more, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's like the, the simple of the recipe, but yeah. is there more to that? Well, you know, at, at its core, essentially we are consuming too many empty calories and we're not moving our bodies enough. Now, why that is the case is where things get a little bit more complicated because human beings are complicated. <laughs> so, you know, we could look at it at a societal level. So we have technology that encourages us to move very little because we can accomplish it. Like, literally I can just order food from my phone and it shows up at my door and I got to walk from my couch to the door, you know, seamless transactions, things like that. I don't have to even pull out my wallet. It's like already paid for, you know, and so on. And so we have, we, we basically have a society that's engineered to keep us not moving. We also have like literally millions of like junk food products that are essentially like addictive. They're kind of like drugs um, and they're engineered. There's not an accident that they're addictive. Like it's legit lights up the, your brain the same way that drugs do. Maybe not as powerfully because I don't like the cocaine sugar comparison, but it still lights up your brain in addictive fashion. So we got that. Then we have our brain. 
And our brain also doesn't want us to move because remember we have a famine biology. Our brain wants us to expend as little energy as possible to keep you alive and store as much energy as possible because again, our brain is operating from this place of food is scarce. I have to eat as much as I can and move as little as I can. Remembering that throughout human history, prior to like electricity and everything that's followed that, everything was hard work and we expended a lot of energy just staying alive. And now we don't have to expend hardly any energy to stay alive, but we can get just insane amounts of calories at our doorstep. And so we, we have that to contend with as well. So we have our, our environment, our physical, social, cultural environment, along with our biology to try to contend with. And then I believe that we live in a more emotionally and mentally stressful world, not physically, but mentally and emotionally more than ever before. Again, the advent of technology, the way that our brain gets overwhelmed with the fire hose of information that's being sprayed in our face daily, like it is way more than any one person ever taken at any given time. All, all, you know, we can now learn about everything horrible that's happening everywhere in the world. So we add that in and that diminishes like our sort of our, our executive function, this part of our brain that does the thinking. And so put all this stuff together and most people, you don't have to remember all this. This is what I do is I help you put this together without you having to think so much about it because I'm an engineer, but you put all this together and you go, this isn't just you're a fat, lazy slob, right? If that was the case, like... Yeah, uh, you know, I think most people aren't. Like when someone says to me, like, oh, I'm just lazy. I'm like, I don't buy that. Let's figure out what's happening in your brain. Let's figure out why this is happening. And when we can figure that out, we go, okay, your old story wasn't a fat, lazy slob. The new story is this. Here's what's really going on. Once we understand what's really going on, now we can give you a solution. Because what's the solution to I'm a fat, lazy slob? It's work harder, you fat, lazy slob. Well, maybe you're burnt out. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you're heavily stressed. And it's like... Your, your, your nervous system's already redlining and you're trying to push it harder, that's setting yourself up for like a breakdown. And so we have to look at this differently and that's what I try to help people to do. Yeah, I I know that stress releases cortisol and cortisol has an effect on how your fat is stored because your body's reacting to the stress <laughs> and saying, oh, it's time for a famine. <laughs> yeah, and then you yeah. store. So yeah, it, and it's on top of all the other problems that those hormones and chemicals and all that causes when you, yeah. when you process it that way. Yeah. Um, cortisol is a fun one because without cortisol, we'd be dead. And, and the cortisol is the hormone that helps us come from being asleep to being awake. So it's, it's necessary, but it's when it's chronically elevated, that's a problem. And so of course we have chronic stimulation and chronic stressful stimulation. Again, everything that social media puts our way, the news media, all this kind of stuff, like chronic stressful stimulation, elevating cortisol all the time. Well, cortisol says there's an emergency. There's, there's a serious situation here. I need to consume glucose, which is our, the body's form of sugar that it uses as quickly as possible. And then so you get a blood sugar crash because it's using up all the available blood glucose. So now you get a massive craving. And it's like, I don't care what I eat. We'll use language like I'm starving. You're actually not, I'm starving. And then when you use um, alarmist language, like I'm starving, it's like, this is an emergency. I don't care if I pound six Snickers bars, I'm starving. And if I don't eat this, something really bad is going to happen. And it's like, actually, you're just uncomfortable. <laughs> you're right. not actually starving. Right. So learning how to kind of reframe some of these things as well and cultivate um, emotional resilience. So the ability to, to be uncomfortable. So we, we've, all, we've become too comfortable. 
and again, it's not just because we're, we're lazy people. We have a biology that wants us to move as little as possible, you know, but we could, we could just go, well, shoot, it's my biology, what I'm going to do and give up. No, no, no. But it just means you have to know like what you're working with and what you're working against. But ultimately it's still, there's an element of personal responsibility that's inescapable. So, I mean, even with like the food and everything else, like we still have agency and autonomy over what we eat and what we consume. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the bottom line is nobody else can lose my weight, right? Nobody else can get me healthy. That's got to be me. And understanding what our body is doing or what our mind is doing or why we think the way we think, you know, yeah, that could either make us a victim or it could give us the opportunity to learn how to reframe it. Like you said. Yeah. I love that you mentioned the word victim. Um, I sat in victimhood for quite a while. I mean, I went through trauma. I was nearly beaten to death living in South Africa. Like it, it just messed with my head. And so if I, I've got, I think a fairly legitimate reason to cry victim. My coping mechanism was binge eating, um, just smashing food to try to, to try to numb whatever I was feeling in my head after going through what I went through. And that went on for a number of years. And it was this behavior that I was horribly ashamed of, but felt out of control around. And so I just, you know, and I share that mostly to put into context, like the stuff I'm talking about here. It's like, I, I've lived this. <laughs> I've been, I've been in the crap for, um, yeah, I was in it for many, many years struggling. So, um, the other, here's another important element here. Um, so being a victim is, is attractive because to some degree, it says I'm powerless to change. Therefore it's outside of my responsibility and people get to feel sorry for me. So I get sympathy because I'm a victim, but ultimately it's very, it's very disempowering. And there's a part of us that goes, I actually don't want to be that even as appealing as it is to like not move and just get sympathy for people. It's like, I want, I want to rise above this. And it's again, it's only possible. Like on the inside, you have to, you have to want to do this. And we, I talk about finding what we call our emotionally compelling reason. Like why do you want to be healthy more than you want to be a victim? You know, what, what will get you out of bed to do something, you know, and I go back to being a father for me is like, I mean, I love my, I love my wife, but I mean, I love my kid. Like there's anyone out there who's a parent, like a, a father, like there's something about when that little human like comes in your life. Like we as men, we actually love responsibility. We love like we're providers, we're protectors. It's what we're wired to do with this, this world that tries to like fight against this. We're not supposed to be this or we're supposed to be ashamed. It's like, screw that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we're wired to want to be productive and things. And, and so it's something like being a father, like that brings something out of me where I go, this is, this is something bigger than me. This is not just, I'm not just living selfishly for my own life anymore. I have this little boy who's looking at me, who's imitating me, who's watching everything I do. I got to show him like, I'm responsible for this. So for me, that's my emotionally compelling reason. It's why I keep going when sometimes I want to give up. And I still have feelings of wanting to give up, by the way. Um, I mentioned that because I think it's, we want to acknowledge that there's nothing wrong with having feelings of wanting to give up. Doesn't, you know, those feelings are valid, but it doesn't mean we have to act on them. Yeah. So you said this kind of briefly, and I don't want to gloss it over because, you know, if it, you said earlier that it's okay to kind of, whatever you talk about, you're willing to talk about it. Did you just say you got beaten to, or almost beaten to death in South Africa? Okay. Yeah. We've got to hear the story there. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. So um, my wife and I were traveling around the world. We spent about three years doing this. And uh, one of the stops was South Africa because when we were living in Mexico, we met a, a young man from South Africa. And along the way, we visited in various countries. He's like, well, you have to come to South Africa. You know, my parents were running a, a not-for-profit, teaching underprivileged young people life skills and whatnot. So I was, I was a part of that. 
Sorry, there's some steps in the background. It's actually, I think, my little boy. <laughs> I'm literally recording a podcast episode and have signs on the door. And my little boy just bursts through the door. He can come say hi, I guess. <laughs> you would... You would... <laughs> I'm so excited to see me. Hi. <laughs> Sorry. Hi. Hi. Cute, buddy. <laughs> I was so excited to like come and see me. Oh man, but this is this is why we do what we do. Right? Hi. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm surprised man. how many times that actually happens when we're recording this yeah. podcast, man. <laughs> and sometimes I edit it out. But honestly, sometimes I don't because it is oh, amazing. No. So I love it. It looks just. You look just like you. Yeah. But <laughs> cloning is illegal. Oh man. Yeah. So so Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I could hear him coming down the hallway and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> I know what's happening. And of course I love my kid and I, I normally it's okay for him to interrupt, but I I put signs in the door being like, Hey, video but of course he can't read and he knows how to open the door. So he just raises his head of mom, opens the door, bursts in. Oh man, right when I'm telling this really, you know. Anyway, so we're we're down in South Africa. We'll, we'll get back on topic. Um, working on a nature reserve, and uh, so we're teaching groups of about thirty students at a time. And this is set up. There's an educational building, dormitory, um, a building for like eating and things like that. And then like there's an instructor's cabin way off in the bushes, kind of thing. And so I was walking back to the instructor's cabin one night, and uh, everyone else is like in the dining hall. They're eating. They're all having a good time or whatever. And uh, the door is slightly ajar. And this is nighttime. It's dark. You know, I'm in flip flops. Um, sweatpants, t-shirt, just relaxes ever, loving her work, loving the stuff. Her students are amazing. And the door is slightly dry. I was like, oh, I guess I didn't shut it properly. <laughs> it doesn't register the deadbolts, like, sticking out of the door. <laughs> and it's been, like, jimmied open. These are the details, I remember, after the fact. Open the door, there's three guys in the cabin sitting at the little table, making and drinking tea and eating rusks, which are these hard biscuits that South Africans eat. And again, still didn't register in my brain that something's off about this situation at first. <laughs> um, I, I saw one of their faces and was like, I recognize you. And I, he was one of the rangers, but he wasn't in uniform. And so, that, again, my, my brain didn't go, there's something wrong with the situation, you know. Because near a nature reserve, it's like protected. There's fences and stuff like that. There's rangers and all this. So I wasn't thinking something's wrong with the situation. I didn't see the fourth guy. fourth guy was outside the cabin. And he smashes me across the head with a rock. And of course, now I'm like, what is going on? The other three had now, by this time, like jumped up uh, off the table and come bursting out the door and, and joined in on this. And, and the part that I remember the most was like, I was wearing a shirt like this, a colored um, golf shirt. And that this guy, he grabs like the scruff of this shirt. He looks like right into my eyes, smiles, and then says, shh, and then smashes me across the head again with this rock. And uh, so now I, I'm, I'm concussed and I wasn't quite unconscious, but they all pile on and just started like kicking and stomping. And I'm like screaming for help, but nobody can hear me because there are three buildings away <laughs> having a grand old time eating dinner and making dishes and, you know, all, all this noise. And, and uh, later on, you know, in part of the debriefing, the students said, we heard something, but we thought it was the monkeys screeching. <laughs> I was like, ooh, that's kind of fitting, I guess. <laughs> um but somehow, like, I, I just had this thought, like, I can't die tonight. And uh, maybe everyone thinks that when they're in a situation like this. Like, and if I'd been hit probably one more time across the head, like, I would have been unconscious. And then they would have just kept the beating going until I was dead. Somehow I was able to, like, have the strength to kind of fight my way to my feet. And I can't really explain how. How do you, how do, you do it? 
Um, but I knew that I couldn't like stick around and I managed to get to my feet and then I just started like stumble running towards the building where people were. And it was probably a few hundred feet away for whatever reason. They didn't chase me. I don't know why, because they could have very easily caught me and kept the beating going. And, uh, I managed to, you know, get through the door, but faces like covered in blood. I'm like staggering in like boot marks all over me and stuff. Like you know, I've been attacked. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know who's out there. And uh, we ended up getting kind of trapped in this building because um, we got everybody in this building. My, my wife was incredibly brave in this experience. Got everybody in the building, got the doors kind of barricaded and whatnot. And I remember I was just like slumped in the kitchen up against some cupboards on the floor, holding a fork to like defend myself, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, I'm concussed and I have no idea what kind of almost like what's going on. I just know I'm trying not to die basically and uh, probably need some medical attention at this point. But uh and so, thankfully, one of, the, one of the students still had their cell phone, and they were able to get enough reception to call the police, which, um, again, surprisingly, somebody actually answered. Police over there are not the same as over here. Like, they just kind of try to avoid doing their job as much as possible and collect a paycheck. But it was a senior officer that, that answered, and so they actually dispatched some officers to come out. But uh, it took about 45 minutes to get there because it's about you know, 20 minutes outside the city and then 20 minutes to drive through like the nature reserve to even get to where we are. And you can see in the nighttime all across the through the other side of the valley where they come in, the red and blue lights flashing, right? So these guys have been trying to smash down the doors with shovels and things. And uh, when they saw the lights, they just kind of melted in the bushes. So then the cops show up and they're like, oh, looks like nobody died. Nobody got raped. All right, cool. We're leaving. My wife was like, What? <laughs> No, you're not. My husband needs medical attention. People saw their faces. They were at the doors. Like, there's stuff here. They're in the bushes. They literally just, dis you know, they're not gone. You could find them. You have guns, you know. <laughs> Anyways, so she stood up to these, like, four, four uh, big uh, South African cops and was like, you know, you're not leaving until everyone is off here. We are not staying here tonight. Like, they're still out there. And we don't know how many of them there are. Because they often travel in packs of like up to 15, like these roving gangs doing this kind of stuff. And so we got out of there, got to the hospital. It was, it was I was concussed, but no broken bones, um, no brain damage, thankfully. They narrowly missed like my eye. There's like a, a little scar tucked in here that people can't see unless you look really, really closely. <laughs> the hit was like right here. And it was, uh, you know, didn't break my orbital bone and think like there's so many things about this that were like pretty lucky. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm a man of faith. I don't, I don't broadcast all that much, but I, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And so I, I believe that he helped me survive that experience. And so, but the, the follow-up from that was like, unless you've been through trauma, it's like hard to know. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't hardly know what I'd been through, but, uh, then starts like the, the flashes of rage and, and things like that, wanting to kill people, um, uncontrollable eating episodes, uh, all these huge emotions that I didn't know what to do with because for most of my life, I'd never been, I guess never really been, it had never been modeled for me how to manage big emotions. And now that I look back through my childhood, I remember like I, I had a lot of temper tantrums as a kid, meaning I actually had a lot of big emotions that eventually had to come out because I didn't, you know, my dad, I love him. He's a, he's a wonderful man, but he didn't know how to express emotions and he had a traumatic upbringing and so on. So I didn't know how to deal with them. And so that's what caused me to fall into this sort of binge eating and food addiction. And it was just me trying to numb everything that I was experiencing because I didn't know what else to do. And uh, so that's kind of the kind of the backstory as as in a coconut sized nutshell. Yeah, your superhero origin story, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. The yeah, and so I'm sorry that you went through that for one thing. Yeah, I'm actually um, grateful for it. Would you and, believe? Yeah, well, no, I do believe that. I think that's part of the process of healing is when you get to the place where you can look at the trauma and 
and you can recognize the good that came from it. But what a crazy, horrible experience, dude. And it's crazy how, like, we often think about childhood trauma yeah. as the stuff that affects the rest of our life, but like trauma can happen to you at any point. And, you know, like that would definitely mess you up, you know, like, like what a powerless situation to be in, you know, even as tough as you could be like, yeah. you get caught off guard. What are you going to do? You know? Man. Yeah. I was in flip flops and sweatpants, t-shirt relaxed. I was not expecting to get jumped. I was caught off guard. I was outnumbered. Like there's so much, and I have, I have a strong sense of like fairness. And there's so much about that situation that was also just like straight out, flat out, like unfair and unjust. And that really angered me. They, these, these men actually murdered a guy the night before they, they, the cops probably shouldn't have told us. So there's so many things that emerged after the incident. Like that morning, it was a Monday morning. It was Monday night was the attack that Monday morning. There'd been a helicopter like flying overhead and we just thought it was like maybe it's a aerial tour of the reserve or something like that now they were looking for like this group of guys that had smashed a farmer's head and they beat his like the cops and they smashed his head in like a pumpkin i'm like they probably shouldn't be telling us this stuff especially like a traumatized guy who just like mm -hmm. been through an attack like that and so but and, and when we got to our cabin because we would go back to the city for the weekend then we come back or during the week and I remember the cabin that Monday morning. It was like, it was very messy. And I was thinking, well, I'll just talk to our boss and let them know, let the weekend facilitators, like, could they just clean up after themselves, you know? But probably it had actually been ransacked. These guys have been hiding out in the nature reserve and, and like ransacked the cabin. So there's so many things in hindsight when we look back, we go, man, had we looked at this through a different lens, we might've been a little bit more on our guard, but we weren't thinking about it like that. And I think that's the case in so many situations. So, I mean, yeah, helplessness, frustration, rage, anger. Like, I'm ex-military. I wanted to set traps for people. I, like, I wanted, I knew when I got to the stage, because our house got broken into a lot as well. Like, crime in South Africa is so horrible. It's so rampant. It's so violent. I, I wanted to set traps for people so they would break into the house, and then I would attack them. I'd have the upper hand, and then I could, you know, essentially, when I started plotting what I was going to do, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, I, I can't, something horrible is going to happen. <laughs> and either I'm going to do something horrible or something horrible is going to happen to me. We have to leave before that happens. Because there's still a voice in my head going, this isn't you. You know, you're not a, you're not a killer. You're like a teddy bear that hugs people, you know, but I wanted to kill people. And, and yeah, that's when I knew like, okay, we got to get out of this situation because like one way or another, something bad. And, and we were horribly traumatized because like, we never really had opportunity to, to, to process it either. And the thing with trauma is it gets burned into the part of your brain that doesn't register time. And that's why the trauma could have happened, you know, a month ago or 10 years ago or 40 years ago. It doesn't matter. Time doesn't heal this. And and I share that because any, any men out there listening who have been through trauma, like time doesn't heal it. You got to get help. That's, that's the only way. And there's no shame in getting help. So the weight gain and the binge eating was your reaction to that trauma. Mm -hmm. So yeah. did it take a, t a while before you got to that place where you recognized what was causing that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I sort of like, cause I already had interest in like health and fitness and whatnot. And I'd been an athlete growing up and, and stuff like that. And a part of me like knew like as much as I was eating, like it wasn't really healthy, but I was also kind of in this place of um, kind of like dissociation and denial. 
So in my head, I was still picturing that I was this athletic guy, even though this weight was piling on. And people would say, well, it's like literally in front of you. Can't you see it? And I go, we kind of need to understand something here. Like what we see with our eyes is not exactly what exists in the real world. There's filters. <laughs> and so light comes into our eyes and it goes to like the filters of our brain, which then like calculates and registers the information that we're seeing. And so in my head, I had this filter, this picture that, hey, I'm not that big. I'm still this athlete and so on and so forth. So I was in my head, I was changing what I was at, what was actually staring at me in the face, you know? And so this place of dissociation, not only recognizing that this is what this is what was happening to my body and not wanting, maybe not wanting to see it, not wanting to um, come to a place of realization of what was really taking place, pardon me, taking place. And um, it wasn't until we got back to Australia, my wife's from Australia. And so we were over visiting her family and, you know, I got working on a, a cotton farm out here in like <laughs> Queensland, which is like a tropical, ridiculously hot state. And that facilitated some weight loss, um, thankfully, but it, it didn't stay off. Um, but that, that was when I was starting to sort of come to terms with what had happened. But um, it still took like a number of years to work my way through it because the other thing is I had a very, I look back now, like I had a really disordered relationship with myself. So I didn't know anything about self-love or self-compassion or any, any thoughts I had about it because, uh, you know, I would have dismissed because I really, I think I had this unhealthy vision of what masculinity looks like or manliness looks like. And so, and, and the feelings would be sissy mm -hmm. things like, you know, um, I mean, I, I used to do motorcycle racing and, and like powerlifting and, and, and listening to heavy metal and snorting pre-workout. Like I was. Right. Well, I mean, other than snorting pre-workout, like everything's, none of those things are bad things, right? But, no, no. But for me, it was a overcompensation because right, right. I kind of had this awareness that I'm actually an empath. Like I'm, I'm really sort of gentle hearted, caring kind of guy. I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm you know, walking at six, one, two, forty. I'm not a small guy, but and, and sometimes my physical presence like, it garners me respect without, you know, but I, I was like, I was trying to be this thing I thought I was supposed to be because I thought what I actually was, wasn't like manly enough, which is really interesting in hindsight. I didn't understand that it was okay to have all these emotions and feelings. And in fact, that was part of what made me masculine and human. And so it took, it took, it took until 20. So the attack happened in 2011. It took until 2017 when I hired a coach. Um, out of, so kind of out of desperation uh, to really understand like how much I needed to learn about self-love and self-compassion and what it actually looks like through masculine lens. Cause it, it looks different than, than how we might approach it. And that's okay. Um, he made it safe for me to kind of go through that experience myself. And so um, yeah, learning about self-love wasn't about like bubble baths and you know eating chocolate and sort of sort of feminine self-indulgence and, and not to knock any of those things but it was really about actually legitimately like manning up and taking care of myself and then seeing those actions as you know i'm not a worthless person because of these struggles um i'm actually a valuable like human being because I, I hated myself i hated my body i hated who i became and it was like i was trying to punish my body into submission a lot of the stuff i was doing i was just trying to beat my body into submission and it wasn't working and it never will. You can't hate your way into a healthy body. And so I actually had to learn what masculine self-love looks like. Yeah. I have a, a friend who hated his body into submission, right? And uh, it worked for a little while. And then he put the weight back on because it's not permanent, you know? And, and uh, you know, and I'm, I, I remember having that conversation with him, you know, like, dude, like I get it. 
like he was trying to help coach me a little bit. He's like, man, you got to look in the mirror and you got to say, I hate you. And I'm like, no, that's not going to help me, dude. <laughs> it's not going to help me. And now, you know, the, the, yeah, a couple of years later, I'm like, yeah, he hates himself still. And he hates himself again, you know? So well, um, I, I, I don't know. Are you, are you a dad or do you have kids? I do. I've got four grown kids now. So, and two grandkids, Amazing. three grandkids. Yeah. What? You look young, man. Yeah. Well, the, <laughs> the joke is that the fat pushes out the wrinkles. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm 44. So at the time oh, of recording right. this, I'm 44. So I'm not that much, uh, but I got a, an early start. My wife and I uh, got married pretty young. She was 18. I was 19. Yeah. We had twins on our one year wedding anniversary. And yeah, so that's our world. You know, okay, we're like, okay. let's be young enough to enjoy the grandkids, you know, so. Which is really cool. I'm like, I'm going to show up to my kids' graduation. They're like, oh, it's so nice your grandpa came. My brother is uh, just about your age, maybe a little bit younger than you. And he's got a three-year-old right now. And I'm like, dude, yeah, like, man. dude, that's awesome. Why I gotta, There's no way. There's no way I could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I got to take care of my health, right? Because, I mean, you know, 60 doesn't have to be pushing a walker or, like, walking around like a cripple. Like, we can we can take care of our health. But um, what I was thinking about was imagine if I started every day saying to my son, I hate you, you suck. Mm. Like, it, it hurts my heart even thinking about doing that. Yeah. But imagine, like, how would he develop emotionally if every day I came at him with that energy? I hate you. You suck. You have to work harder. Like, mm it's just not going to work. And so we have to do this differently. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That does not help you overcome your problems by beating yourself up. Yeah. If it was going to work, it would work by now. It doesn't mean you can't be real yeah. about the situation and tell the truth about the yeah. situation. I can look at myself in the mirror and say, that doesn't look good, mm -hmm. man. Like, like you've messed up here. Like you can say that. Yeah. But. So let me give you my analogy on compassion or I guess kind of how I, how I picture it. So, because I, I thought compassion was more like enabling. So let, let's say, like, um, do, do you have a vice, like some sort of food or drink or something that, like, is a bit of a bit of a trigger for you? Or you oh yeah, trouble? yeah, yeah. Convenience store pizza. Okay. So let's just say um, I, I come by your place, just dropped in, kind of unannounced. It's maybe a Tuesday afternoon, and uh, you're kind of sitting on your couch. You're about halfway through this pizza, <laughs> I know, and, and you're kind of. Like, you know, those who are listening, you can't see the expression I made, but anyway, it's, you can just imagine yeah. looking up kind of surprised, caught off guard, you know. Now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I come to you and I go, Josh, you stupid idiot, what are you doing? Like, you're a fat slob and you're not making this better. Actually makes me want to eat more pizza. Right. So so that's, that's judgment, right? So judgment makes right. you not want to change the behavior, but get better at hiding the behavior because mm. you don't want to feel the mm. judgment. This was me eating a pizza in my car in a parking lot, like an entire large, like stuffed crust, double cheese, double pepperoni pizza, hating myself with every bite, but forcing myself to keep eating it because it's basically spite eating. When you bought you it, know, you don't want to throw it, it away. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, but that will just make you better at hiding the behavior. It doesn't, doesn't inspire the desire to change the behavior. Now, on the other hand, what if I came in and I was like, Oh man, look, you, uh, I get it. You've been having a hard day. Uh, you're already halfway through. You might as well eat the whole thing at this point. You know, it sounds like I'm being compassionate because I'm kind of letting off the hook a little bit and, and giving you an excuse for, for, for why you're doing it and, and giving permission to continue doing this self-destructive thing. 
that's called enabling, right? That's not compassion. Maybe that's where I got it twisted in my head. Compassion walks the middle road. So we're looking at your behavior without judgment, but we want to understand what's going on here and why you're doing it and acknowledge that what you're doing isn't helping you. But it doesn't mean that you're a bad human being. Like every behavior is probably could be categorized sort of like an attempt to solve a problem or attempt to meet a need. And so we go, like, what need is that behavior serving? Are you stressed out? Did you need a break? You know, are you bored? Like, what are you going through? Like, that, if that behavior wasn't in some way helping you, even if it's a terrible long-term solution, like, you wouldn't do that. Take smoking, for example. Like, people who smoke, it's not like they don't know that smoking is terrible for your health. But in the moment, you ask a smoker, it's like, I just need to smoke. I'll quit mm -hmm. tomorrow. That sort, of, that sort of thinking pattern. And it's like, right now, this problem feels more urgent than the smoke solves the problem faster. And then what, but, but it becomes a pattern that we start living out on repeat, this pattern of behavior. And, and there's, so many, there's so many patterns of behavior that we have that we start living on a repeat. We start living from this place of like urgent reactive response. Again, almost going back to this chronic stress piece. Where, but if we, if, if we take judgment out of the picture, it allows us to, I call it like wrestle with our demons in the light. People come to me, the stuff I hear that people have been through, I'm like, jeepers, I understand why you're doing this and you're not a bad human being for doing this. Now, I'm not going to encourage you to keep doing this because I know it, like compassion isn't letting you destroy yourself. That is not compassion. But it's like, let me help you end the suffering. But first of all, let me hear you. Let me validate you. Let me say it's okay. Like, I understand why you're doing this. And we start from that place. Okay, now we can start to create real change. So I, it's easy to picture that conversation between two of us, right? Like that's the analogy that you just used. There's two of us. Let's walk that. It's harder though to picture that with one person, mm -hmm. picture that with yourself. Yeah. You know, because I often think, why is coaching still a thing in like the 21st century? Why do people still hire me? I mean, I, I know why, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's good to ask these questions. If Google was going to solve all our problems, like if it was an information problem, Google would have solved it. Now, every time I, every time I say that, I think about like um, Ice Ice Baby, you know, check out the quote DJ Revolver. Yo, <laughs> I forget the line now. <laughs> Anyways, but my wife can wrap it. There's a problem. Yo, she's got it all memorized. So. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, if there's a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook on my DJ Revolver. There we yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. Um, something like that. Anyways, if, 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 if information was the problem, Google would have figured it out for us. So it's not an information problem, right? This is a human problem. It's an implementation problem. So we have to understand, I call it living in the gap. How do we bridge the gap between what we know and what we do? And if we don't know why we're living in the gap, we'll come up with stories like, I'm a loser, I'm lazy, I, you know, whatever sort of story we come up with, whatever excuse come, because we don't really know. Like, I don't know why I do this. I don't know how to, and that's, that's what I wanted to figure out. Like, why was I compulsively eating out of control? I had to figure this out because if I could understand the behavior, then I can finally start to change it. And so you're right. I'll give a biological sort of explanation for why it is that we still need coaching. So to create transformation, we have to become vulnerable. But if you're isolated and alone, your primal brain goes, uh-uh, we're not doing this. It is not safe for me to become vulnerable like that. Right? It's risky. And I don't take that risk. But now I come into the picture and go, I've got your back. I create the space. I hate the cliche term create space, but anyways, I don't have a better term. So create the space for you to be vulnerable. We're safe for you to be vulnerable. 
and go through this process where I've got your back. You need to be heard, I'm here to listen. You need to be validated, awesome. You're not sure what to do, I'm here to guide you. I've worked with hundreds of people plus been on this journey myself. There's so much to that. And it's, it's, I still hire coaches because I'm still human. I still struggle. doesn't matter how well I know this stuff. I still need help too. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because over the years that I've had a love hate relationship with the word vulnerable, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree. just because like, like you said, like you don't want to be vulnerable with just anybody. You know, like it's not a virtue yeah. to be, to be vulnerable. I like that, like yeah. everybody's like, Oh, he, he's a great man because he's vulnerable. That's not what makes him a great man. Mm. It's he's a great man because he's vulnerable to the right people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like being vulnerable is being vulnerable is walking into that, you know, cabin without being aware of what's going to happen to you, you know? And so I get that. Like that's, was yeah. that hard for you then to overcome yeah. that so, vulnerability because of that? Yeah. And I think I, I, I know exactly why you're saying what you're saying, because there's, there's like victimhood vulnerability. Right. And that's the people that get hooked on like being vulnerable and, and using that as a reason to stay stuck. Right. Right. And I think, I think maybe if I have it right, that's kind of what you're talking about when you see this love, hate thing with vulnerability. If I'm always pulling out the vulnerability card, I'm just looking to make people feel sympathy for me. Mm -hmm. You know, here like, I'm being vulnerable and I'm sharing my story, but I'm also saying like, I didn't stay stuck in that. I did for some time. I was, I wanted to be a victim. I acted like a victim and I was stuck for a number of years. Couldn't seem to figure my way out of this. It actually took someone, a coach who was not emotionally connected to me necessarily to impartially look at like a third party observer and go, here's the things you can't see. It's like, try to see between your shoulder blades. Mm -hmm. You can't, but someone who's not connected to you. Hey, let me tell you what's going on. By the way, you also can't lick you know? your elbow. Yeah. So you need somebody else to do that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm sure I was like, I bet that there's gotta be like some hyper flexible person who can like dislocate their shoulder and like, you know, and I'm sure there's a TikTok video of them actually successfully licking their elbow. Or maybe they have abnormally short humeruses or something. <laughs> Sorry for making uh, the bad yeah. there. No, but in all seriousness, though, you're right. Like no, there no, are parts no. of you that you can see and having someone yeah. that you can trust to be able to yeah. help you see that is everything. Yeah. And so it's like for those who are tempted to make vulnerable posts on social media, it's like it's, it's okay. But like don't go to that well every time. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's okay. Like, so, so emotions and feelings are valid to some degree, right? Like I, I say complaining sort of has a place. It's you trying to express like, Hey, I'm feeling this right now. And I just need to get this out. Awesome. But don't stay stuck in the place of chronic complaining, complain, be heard and then decide, okay, now I'm going to do something about this. Whatever it is that I can do and what I can't do, I will, I will move past. Or get help if you need help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's an interesting exercise just around the spheres of control. And it's kind of like three concentric circles. And the first one is the one you have direct control over. The second one you have some influence over. And the third one you have like no influence, no control over. And you just look at where's your time, attention, energy going. Is it going into that third biggest circle? All these things you have no control over. That'll keep you stuck and feeling like a victim. Mm -hmm. So it's like... If you want to create change, it starts with the things that you can directly control, which will then spill over into 
the things that you have some degree of influence over. That will feel a lot more purposeful. And I think that, you know, you said you're a man of faith, so this might make sense, but the idea that, uh, you know, if you're faithful with little, you'll be given much. Mm -hmm. So if you um, take control of those areas that you do have control over, you'll get more (laughs) that you have some more control over. You know what I mean? I I think it kind of expands that circle when you master what you have. Yeah. This, this, Personal responsibility is like a big thing. Like like we touched on earlier, we live in a world that's engineered to make us fat and uh, make us sedentary and make us want to be victims, disempowering us, especially men. You know, it's it's a subtle war on masculinity. It's not like an overt declaration of war. It's a subtle war, the uh, feminization of our men. And it's not just, I mean, it's done through media, it's done through food products. And it may, it may sound like a conspiracy theorist. I don't even know if it's entirely deliberate, but the fact is we know that eating certain food products like crushes testosterone production down to like nothing. So does being obese though. When yeah. we're obese, our body fat produces an enzyme called, um, oh shoot, name escapes. Anyways, it produces an enzyme um, that will convert testosterone into estrogen. So it's like this vicious cycle. Um, and so our te- like for me, I remember like I, had, I did this hormone test to figure like what was going on in my body. And it was like, where's your testosterone? Like I'm not seeing any. <laughs> my estrogen levels were off the charts. And so it was, it was this really, really tough place to be where like, um, you know, I was pretty strong and, and, and whatnot, but like I couldn't seem to get anywhere. And it's because I had this super high estrogen levels. So estrogen, um, testosterone and cortisol all kind of have the same precursor. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we can sort of shunt between the, the three. And so all of my testosterone was being diverted into making estrogen and cortisol as opposed to testosterone. And so, you know, and then we figure like there, there are foods that we eat, of course, that drive us to become obese. And as such, again, it's killing, like our testosterone production has never been lower as a, at, a, at a human level. And people are trying to say, well, this is a good thing. I'm like, no, it's not. Low testosterone, like high testosterone is not what makes men aggressive. It makes them productive. It makes them actually great men. It's like, it's insecurity. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that makes men behave poorly. And and while, while we're sort of here, I'll just say like, I really don't like the term toxic masculinity, although mm-hmm. I know why it exists. Because there are certainly behaviors that aren't helpful. But the message we're giving our young men is... By just by virtue of you being a man, there's something wrong with you. And it's like, no, there's not, damn it. I I love being male. I love being, you know, and my wife loves it too. She doesn't want, like, I don't want to sound mean. But like, look, she doesn't want me to be like this sort of lap dog who's just like, no, no, no. She loves it when I'm a strong man. Now, a strong man doesn't mean I order her and do submission or beat her. None of those things. Right. You know, I but she's drawn to that. There's something in her that is attracted to when I'm not just sort of being a sniveling victim. And again, it makes me sound callous when I'm actually a very caring, empathetic person. But I'm, I also think, you know, being strong is, is a good thing. And we've got to stop tearing that down. I agree with you. I say that all the time, actually. Like, so toxic masculinity was the, the concept behind it, right? Which is when masculinity is, mm-hmm. is being used yeah. to belittle people, you know, or to abuse women or to promote misogyny, the concept 100%, that is a real thing, right? That insecure manhood that has to, you know, get a lifted truck and a leather jacket and be the bad boy to get attention. 
That's a real thing that exists. But what they did by putting toxic and masculinity together for, you know, 10 years, you didn't hear the word masculinity without the word toxic in front of it, in front of it. And then the American Psychological Association comes out with an article saying traditional masculinity is harmful to boys. And I'm like, no, no, you're not paying any, like it, you you started to just cheapen the concept of being a man and saying that being a man is bad. So 100% I agree with you on that. You're 100% right. Like it is good to be a man. man. The world needs good men. Yeah. And we all, no matter where we're at, need to fight to be even better men. You know, like, don't be content with yeah. that spot that we get in, right? Where we're like, okay, I've arrived. You, yeah. you never arrive. Yeah. You arrive when you yeah. die. So here's the thing. You know? it's, it's always going to be, like, in a sense, a fight uh, um, going against the current. And there will be times when there's little, like, I guess, you know, it's an analogy of going up, upstream. You know, there's little eddies and things off the side where you can kind of go and rest when you need to. Rest is necessary. I, I was trying to sleep five hours a night, power lift two hours a day, work 14 hours a day running my business, snorting pre-workout, a caffeine, ephedrine, stimulant junkie, somehow trying to, you know, ah, you know, my way into, like, being a better man, and it didn't work, apparently. <laughs> you know, they had a nervous breakdown. We didn't get any anxiety and, 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 and depression and stuff. That's only another, another topic for another episode. But um, so we need rest. But, you know, we have to be prepared to work and fight for this because, yeah. I, I heard an interesting quote. And, again, I'm, I'm not so much, I guess, into conspiracy theories, but I'm like, man, I – Okay, I am, cool. by the way. But I'm, I'm like, I understand human, I just understand human psychology. And I'm like, those who are in power want to stay in power and want to accumulate more and want to accumulate more wealth and things like that. Like, it just makes sense from a human behavior perspective. So it was said that, like, when a, you know, when a ruling body fears an external population, they, an external threat, they masculinize their men, right? Think World War II, like, you know, and, and how they projected, like, masculinity. When a ruling body fears an internal threat, they feminize their men. And what are we doing right now? We're basically metaphorically and maybe literally in some cases cutting off men's balls, right? Like we're killing, we're killing testosterone production. We're through food, through, you know, media, through all this kind of stuff, normalizing obesity, you know, obesity is damn hard. Okay. Like it's hard to be that. And it's hard to fight against it. And I understand people want to give up and not fight against it. But it's like, if you don't fight for yourself, nobody else is going to. And so, yeah, we, we got to fight to be, we have to fight to be better men. Yeah, 100%. That's awesome. Speaking of which, yeah, it kind of brings me to the point of the interview where I like to ask them, I guess, a couple questions. And so we've kind of touched on this, but the first question is, what does it take to be a man? Yeah, and I thought about that a lot. And I think I want to give a shout out to um, uh, Alan Smith, you know, author of Men Fight for Me and, and director for, of um, Saving Innocence, who he, he wrote um, a section in his book on what does authentic masculinity uh, look like. And it's like we take responsibility. Um, we, we are providers. We're willing to be protectors. We take care of our health. So in other words, we do take ownership of our lives and we're not afraid to step into difficult situations. And so, but the other part of it is we're also not afraid to experience emotion. It doesn't mean we're ruled by them. It doesn't mean, but we're not, we, we don't blunt 
and numb and deny that these emotions exist. So we're in an emotionally healthy place where we give space to experience emotion without necessarily being entirely controlled by emotion. Yeah, I agree. Oh, by the way, we've had Alan on the podcast. So if anybody's hearing that and they want to go back and listen, uh, that, that podcast with Alan Smith with a Y, S M Y T H is a great podcast episode. So yeah. make sure you go back and listen to that. So I think it's an episode 43 on my podcast between the poor and after. So you know, that's awesome. Too. That's awesome. Great story. Love that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got an awesome heart and, and, and like you said, like takes action and says, okay, here's yeah. a, an evil in the world. How about we take care of this instead of just sitting yeah. back and letting it exist. So that's awesome. So, uh, Jonathan, let's say we're able to suspend the laws of space and time. I don't know. Maybe you climb into the TARDIS or something. I don't know. However, yeah. this is going to happen. You go back and you get the chance to talk to 10-year-old Jonathan. What are you going to tell him? I kind of want to keep it simple and just say, it's okay to have those feelings. You're, you're not less of a, of a young man. For, for having all those feelings, but don't let them, don't let them own you. So give space to that. So you develop healthily, like healthy emotion, but don't let them own you. And if you're, if you're going to be a man, it's going to mean taking responsibility for your actions and I'll, I'll mm. help you do that. Awesome. And what is your best advice for the men that are listening today? I really think that compassionate awareness, it's, it's a topic I talk about quite a bit in, in various arenas, but this compassionate awareness is where we create transformational change. So what I mean is we can't change what we're not aware of. So we have to be willing to step into the conscious awareness of like, here's where I'm struggling. Here's the things I'm not doing so well. We have to face that if we're going to change it. The lens of compassion we kind of talked about earlier, that lens of compassion allows us to look at that without judgment. So you know, maybe somebody's struggling with pornography. I'll use that one as an example because it's a pretty hot button one, I guess, in a sense. You're not a bad person. It's literally white, like it's a super stimulator brain goes, you know, it can barely handle. But you've got to bring that into light and say this is a problem. But it doesn't mean I'm a hopeless man because of it. So compassionate awareness the ability to wrestle with our demons in the light, that's what, that's the space where we create transformational change. Excellent. Jonathan, if our uh, listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to make that happen? Uh, say freedom nutrition coach.com is my, my website. So that's where I do the nutrition coaching stuff. And then I'd, I'd, of course I'd love for people to check out the podcast between the before and after where really we, we share stories of people overcoming adversity, um, we try to get into some of the nitty gritty details of what it was like going through those experiences as well. Similar to what we've shared about here. And so I'd love people to, to check that out between the before and awesome. after. Awesome. We'll make sure to link that up in the show notes. Dude, this has been a great conversation. I feel like we could talk for another hour. So I'm going to keep you on speed now. We're going to do another interview down the road, man. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it up in my show as well. Awesome. That sounds great. Thank you. Jonathan, thank you so much for sharing your story and your struggles and just the the amazing way that you have overcome it. It has been helpful for me to be able to reframe things and to view things through that mindset. And I really appreciate you sharing that with us. 
Guys, if you want to know more about the work that he's doing, check out the show notes. We've got a link to his his information, and you can get plugged in with what he's doing there. He's doing some amazing coaching and some amazing work, and I want to be, definitely be able to put that in front of you. So check the show notes for that. Guys, please don't forget the contest to win the Black Pearl Knife from Haynes Knives. Uh, so if you want to go to our website at manlyhood.com slash contests, you can enter for that. Don't forget to join the Manlyhood Man Cave, which is our private Facebook group. Uh, it's for men only, and it's a place where we can encourage each other and build each other up. I'd love to have you there in the group. Guys, I appreciate you, and I thank you for listening. I thank you for supporting the work we're, here, we're doing here at Manlyhood. Half a million downloads so far, guys, which I'm really excited about. And uh, looking forward to seeing what we're going to do in Season 7. I love you guys. I care about you. And I'll see you next time.